I'm Anushka Astana and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from Hartlepool. I mean the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts. At 28, Phil Samba is already a legend. When he writes, we read, and when he speaks, we listen. His openness about his sexuality and his sexual health means he's often inundated by other young black men who want to know more about him, how he's cultivated his openness, how he's come out, and how he's become the young man he is. Phil is already miles beyond where I was at 28, and sitting in conversation with him reveals a young man who is leaning into his greatness. If I sound overly effusive about Phil, it's only because he deserves it. Gay black men have some of the lowest treatment rates for mental and sexual health, and despite the availability of services, it seems there are some very real hurdles in us accessing the resources designed to save our lives. And so this is the work that Phil has undertaken as an HIV prevention activist, work in which he uses his own lived experiences, his own battles, to help bring more black men into the light. And he does it with so much laughter and so much truth. Phil triggers me no less than five times throughout our conversation, and so I've had no choice but to introduce the Busy Being Black Trigger Buzzer. We speak on our relationships with our parents, the role education and representation plays in preventing homophobic beliefs from taking hold, and finding our strength outside of the prescribed strength tropes so closely associated to black people. We begin our conversation discussing our heartfelt and triggering experiences watching Matthew Lopez's The Inheritance, a play that explores what life is like as gay men just a generation after the AIDS crisis. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Phil Samba. Are you ready to go there? I think I'm ready to have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> because we saw the inheritance, I think it was f- March. No. Mm, yes, yes. 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 And that was actually the first time we met. Yes. No, no. The second, actually. We met at um, Blackout in the end of last year. This always happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's so nice to meet you. And they're like, we've actually met two times before. <laughs> we actually had sex last week. Um, <laughs> that hasn't happened, has it? No, that hasn't actually happened. I do tend to remember. Um... And we were sitting next to each other watching The Inheritance. Part two. Part, in part two, that's well, part right. Part one was, that was the initial bit where I was a mess. Thematically, what was it about The Inheritance? I think partially I needed to cry. Like, that was, like, penned in for some time. And the, it was particularly the end of, like, there's, there's a lot of emotional parts throughout the whole thing. But the end of part one kind of made me realize how important my work is in like HIV and sexual health and I guess it put me in the perspective of what it would have been like in the 80s Mm. for someone that's I mean I'm I'm not even 30 yet so I wouldn't have known what it was like back in those days um thematically it was there was a lot I a lot of the times and I think we had a conversation about this but a lot of times it was like seeing your life on stage mm. which was really <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting and really scary and really like I don't know thought provoking and just I don't know it was just like wow this I'm being read right now you know I I thought I was being read to Phil <laughs> yes I took personal issue with Matthew Lopez <laughs> did you contact him like you said you <laughs> I think I said I was going to send him an email saying why get out of my head <laughs> no, but I think what made it worse was that we were watching part two the next day and it's like you didn't have like a space to breathe and I think it was the second day, that's when the GMFA stuff came out for the Me, Him, Us. Mm. So the campaign came out. So I was like really emotional and it was quite overwhelming. Like to kind of, like my phone was just buzzing basically for like two days. I've, you know, because we were watching it mm. and 
my first criticism was obviously that there weren't black leads, mm-hmm. but that's my first that's my first criticism of any kind of um, HIV AIDS narrative from that time. It's like we so seldom see black people in that space, but actually I couldn't help but fall in love with the story and the mm. themes and what we were seeing playing out on on stage when they went when they were smoking Tina. <laughs> <laughs> At a pool party. (laughs) We'll just have a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, we cried a lot. So thank you for the tissues as well. Yeah, I was like, I was basically handing them. You were handing them to me, and at one point you rubbed my knee, and you were like, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was too much. (laughs) It was like like towards the, the end of the, towards the end of the second part, it was like, oh. After every act, I was like, oh my God, No, I can't do this. No, no, I can't. When the ghosts of HIV passed, <sighs> babe. <laughs> I think what he, what Matthew managed to do there was, as you said, it reminded all of us of, of where we come from. Yeah, and I think that's a big issue amongst a lot of younger gay guys. Like, they think, oh, you know, it's not so bad anymore. I don't really need to know about my history, blah, blah, blah. And we did actually speak about this with one of the questions that we had on Sunday yes. at our brunch. So. so on Sunday, we were at a Black Gay Men's Leadership Brunch, which was hosted by Blackout UK and Pride in London. And one of the questions was, um, younger queer black men don't um, have a lot to teach older queer black men. Ooh, we like. had that question too. Yes, yeah, that was, I think every table <laughs> had that question. Yeah, so... Um, I was and like, it, why are they coming for a read, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the the thing is that, like, younger gay men in general, not just black, have a lot to learn from older and vice versa. For sure. But there is a lot of, like, barriers. So there's a lot of, okay, you're at this age, so I don't want anything to do with you. But then what I found is I learned so much from, from older gay black men. Mm. I learned so much about, like, the sort of the, the work that I do. I learned about the history. I learned about how London used to be. So I learned a lot of things, and I feel like I inadvertently teach a lot of people things. So I don't know. I just feel like we need to kind of make ways where we're not segregating older gay men. And, like, a lot of older gay men, like, much older, like I'm talking 50s, 60s, 70s, they they can be quite lonely because mm-hmm. they don't have their families, and then, like, a lot of people have died around them and stuff like that. So what has helped you connect to an older generation of queer black men? Um... I think it was Mark, actually. Mm. Mark Thompson. Mark Thompson. I've always kind of... Well, not always, but I've dated older men. I don't know. I just feel like there's just so many conversations that I can have and so much I can learn and so much he's been through and done before I was even born. Was there a particular um, experience or conversation that cemented that for you? Um... I think just kind of developed, but we did a a piece in Boys Magazine of um, basically for World AIDS Day. And, like, one of the things he said was, um, I think the question I asked him was, or I realised was just before, is that he he's had HIV for longer than I've been alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, do you know what I mean? Just that is, like, there's so much that I can learn from that because, like, not being HIV positive. In our conversation for Busy Being Black, he said, I have a virus older than you. Mm. And I was like, shit. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. And but we don't think about that. You're right. But like, and then you have to think, he was quite young at the time. 16. And you have to think about, was he 16? He was 16. Wow. Mm-hmm. And like, um... He was diagnosed in November of 1986. Jesus. Yeah. But just like, that was like the height of it, wasn't it, them times? Mm. Before we were born. And then I think in the 90s, um, the medication started to improve. I don't think it was, it's not as good as it is now, but it started to improve. So it's things like that. But I just feel like there's so much I can learn. And there's so much I have learned in the last year. And so was it a connection to an older generation that has um, fueled your activism, your HIV activism and the work in this space? Or was that a separate experience that has then brought you to an older generation? Um, well, technically, um, I, I've always, in a weird way, had an uh, like interest in sexual health. Like, it's, it's a weird one, but, like, um, you know, there's always the friend in the group that knows a lot more yeah. about sexual health or how you contract things. That was always me. So I always had that, like, a little background of it. And then I guess upon meeting Mark, I started going to discussion panels and then watching some documentaries and writing about things and then learning, and it just kind of built. And then, like, I realised when I was doing 
the Me, Him, Us campaign, that I was in a really specific position to do this work because, first of all, I'm quite open about my sexuality and sexual health. And then secondly, I'm gay, black and African. And like, you don't, there's not many gay, black Africans that are there, you know, talking about sexual health, maybe mm. sex and sexuality, but not so much sexual health. And we have some of the highest rates of HIV around the world. So it just makes sense. And I think me being so open about my experiences allows other people to be open with themselves or comfortable with themselves. So the other day someone messaged me saying um, he wanted to get PrEP, but then he thought that um, he was like a bit embarrassed. But then he saw the Me, Him, Us campaign and then he thought, fuck it. Mm. So, yeah, so things like that, if I can do that, then that helps. Like at the minute... I'm doing a lot about mental health mm. because uh, black men and gay black men in particular have some of the lowest uh, treatment rates of mental health. So um, I'm trying to encourage people to, if they need help, by just talking about my experiences. And so what does openness look like for you? Um, I don't have, I have like, I like to say I have like an oversharing filter. Well, my, over, my oversharing filter is broken. Mm. So like I have a tendency to just say anything. Not like in a way where like I speak without thinking because I do think, but I don't care what people think. So then, like, I find that so refreshing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I think um, I actually spoke to my therapist about that, and then he said that what it is is that when people see how open you are and how comfortable you are with yourself, that makes that shows them that you like yourself. Mm. So then it makes other people think if he likes himself, why shouldn't I like myself? So yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> I found because of recent events, mm -hmm. I feel like I, I, I keep mentioning this Jane Fonda quote, and I don't know if Jane Fonda said it or came <laughs> up with it, but it was through her I found it. Uh -huh. um, the moment I thought I was broken, I realized I was broken open. Mm. And I read Audre Lorde's Your Silence Will Not Protect You. Yeah. And I was sitting on so much that I realized isn't mine to hold on to, like mm -hmm. these things that happen to us, whether it's sexual assault or my father's alcoholism or whatever, right? They're not my secrets to keep and I don't think I should be holding on to them anymore. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of openness that I'm working on at the moment where I kind of do talk about addiction and sex and drugs has been a way for me to kind of dispel these things, but yeah. also as it's also asking for help. It's also saying, like, I don't have the answers to all this shit. Yeah. And maybe someone else will, is going through the same thing and can help. That's what I was about to say. Like, your experiences can help someone else that have gone through similar experiences. Mm. And, like, if you have the bravery to be open, then that might help them help other people. So it's like a kind of chain in a way. Well, yeah, it's really good. Um, were you not always open? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no, because I think mm, I was not raised. Um, I was not raised in any kind of way that suggested that openness was a thing to do. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, and in fact, I think addiction runs in the family, and there was we've always been suppressing something. Yeah. And so, <laughs> Sorry, I can relate. <laughs> so more, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what yeah. do you mean? Something is always not spoken. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at no, it, it's funny, though. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, let's take my dad's alcoholism for a second. You know, I'm not supposed to talk about it, right? And there's something that happened a few months ago that I'm not supposed to be talking about. And in the moment when I found out about it, my stepmom said to me, don't talk about it. And I was like, no, of course, right? My natural reaction to that was to be like, no, of course, because we never talk about this kind of stuff. And then a few weeks later, I was like, wait a minute. Why do I not, why am I not allowed to talk about it? Mm. And with whom am I not supposed to be talking about it? And how am I supposed to process this information? If you don't express yourself. If I'm not allowed to talk about it to anybody. And yeah. so it's, yeah, and so that's, it's like little moments like that that made me realize that there was... I was always raised with like, hold on to that. <laughs> yes. Not but everybody needs to know your business. I think I've, I had that a lot as well. Really? And I think that might be part of what, because I feel like I've always been somewhat open, like always, even before I came out. But I think once I came out, it was like, I was just, it was just come out, in abundance. Yeah, I but, come out in abundance. Like, honestly, <laughs> because, but then I feel like my mom, my mom, she's, She's typical West African woman in which, and I don't want to say anything bad about her, but like 
she is very much about what people think mm. and like you can't tell people people can't know about things that right. you can do so I was actually in her like I was raised with the belief of no one can ever know about my sexuality what my mom's friend's gonna think I'm going to ruin her reputation and it's like very like it's very not only say structural it's very um it's just like it's very opinionated in West African culture mm. But my mum takes it to the next level, to the point where even her family can come second to her reputation, her friends, really? and her money and stuff like that. So it's always been with me. And even to this day, I still live with it somewhat. Well, how did you push against that? Um, I think it all changed once it came out. Really? Which is actually another interesting story. Okay, <laughs> tell me. Okay, so I was... How old were you when you came out? Uh, it was between the ages of 20... Two and twenty, I think just before I turned twenty-four. Oh, so it was kind of like yeah, it was pro- it was progressive, it was slow. Because that I think I looked up, I think a YouTuber, a gay YouTuber said to do tell one people tell a person at a time. So I was doing that. So I'd come, I told a few people, and I was like building up, and then I was tell like I had a group of like the interesting thing about me is I went to an all boys Catholic school in East London where most of my friends were straight black guys. So <laughs> I feel like that's had an impact on the way I am and stuff. But uh, I was, I, I think I just had told them. And then um, my mom, my nan and my sister knew, and they took it well. My sister had gay friends, so I knew she'd be fine. My nan was, I think, shocked at first, but the next day she was fine. Um, my mom was listening to my phone conversations. Yeah. How so? She was behind my bedroom door. Oh, like, listening to my mom. <laughs> mostly, the, most of the conversations you have with guys aren't really things mm-hmm. that she should be listening mm-hmm. to. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Josh is taking a sip of water currently. <laughs> so my mom was listening to my phone conversations, and then she started harassing my nan. So then I'm really close with my nan, like disgustingly, not disgustingly, I'm like really, really close with my nan. Like I see her every Sunday and mm-hmm. I'm always doing chores for her and all that stuff. Um, so I'm not as close to my mom. My my mom was then like, okay, you need to ask him, ask him if he's gay, ask him, ask him, just pressurizing her to the point where my nan was like, please, <laughs> like just pour out of her misery because she's getting on my nerves. Oh, so your nan had already known? Yeah, my nan had known for some time, for a few months, I think, by this point. So then, oh, like, my my nan then asked her, if he is gay, what are you going to do? She said, nothing, what can I do? He's gay, he's gay. So obviously I've been living this since I was, when I was like, 14. I was like, mm. what am I going to do? How am I going to tell her? Blah, blah, blah. And then, like, I tell her. And then I think the first thing she said was, can you change your lifestyle? And I was just like, you asked for this. Like, no one, I didn't come to you with this. Like, mm. you asked for me to tell you. And it's been, what, four years, and she still has an issue with it. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, I think from when I came out, I think once you've told all of your friends and all of your family, I think for a lot of people, it's that's, at that point, you don't give a fuck anymore because it's like everyone that's really important to you knows mm-hmm. and everyone that cares about you knows. And they're not, they haven't left your life or anything. Okay. So then what do I have to worry about? Does, so does it bother you that four years later she still has a problem with it it bothers me that she f- she f- begged to know and has a problem with it i think that was quite in its in that was the traumatic thing in a way that it was like i wanted to my plan was to move out of the house tell her and let her deal with it mm-hmm. but then i had to tell her and then live with her awkwardly for like six months and then move <laughs> so and she still doesn't have an issue like like i don't know i feel like if i moved out then she'd think about it where I wasn't there constantly mm. and she could process it and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> but I don't know, maybe that wouldn't have worked anyway. <laughs> but yeah, um, I feel I'm just kind of used to it. She's gotten better. I feel like she's accepted it. But I think that's as far as it goes. Right. Whereas before, she didn't even acknowledge it. But that used to drive me mad because she was the one that asked for it. So it's like, you can't beg me to, force me to come out. And then we just don't talk about it now. Like we, like we were just saying, we don't talk about it. It was like, you asked to talk about it. So we're going to talk about it now. Because it's just being nosy, right? Exactly. <laughs> Gosh. Mm. It's just, it's really annoying. It's really annoying. But it hasn't prevented Phil from being Phil. No. 
because I, if if anything, it makes me want to do more. Right. Because, like, I mean, I, I'm very lucky in the sense of I was born in this country and, um, like, even though I went to an all-boys Catholic school and everything, I came across as quite masculine, so I was, I was always able to hide my, my sexuality. And I think my mom taught me to basically bury everything. Mm. So because I... She taught she inadvertently taught me how to avoid pain. Oh, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you better stop. <laughs> That's just tricky. I just yeah. I like crying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why the inheritance was such, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so because she taught me not how to deal with pain, I kind of used that to mask my sexuality, I think, mm. which is, was good and a bad thing in a way. I was never good at masking my sexuality. Wasn't you? No, I don't think. Well, yeah, no, because I've always been a bit, you know, mincy. Mincy. Mincy is, the, I think, the word. There's a picture of me when I'm four, and it's like, that kid has been <laughs> gay <laughs> for a very long time. <laughs> See, but the other thing is, I didn't know I was gay. Until, really? Until I was, I think, 14. What was it that made you realize? It's a weird one, actually. It's a Go very on. strange one. <laughs> no one's ever matched me, because, you know, you have that defining moment. Yes. Mine was like, actually, do you remember the MTV show, Dirty Sanchez? Yes. When they're always naked all the time. Mm-hmm. That's where it's Interesting. Like, I know. Because they're always naked and shit. Yeah, and I was those like, pranksters, right? Yeah. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay, this is weird. You were like, oh, I have a boner. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, I, f- I, thought, I thought you chose this. I thought this was a decision you made, because that's kind of how you're taught from a child. It's mm-hmm. that you decide to be gay. So that was quite confusing. And I didn't, I think, I didn't admit it to myself until I was about 18, I think. In total, I think I did at 16, and then I was like, yeah, no, this isn't happening. I'm going to avoid that. Mm. But then 18, I think I came around to it, and I was like, okay, I'm, I know that I'm gay, but I'm just going to carry on. And then I didn't act on it until I was 21. And that was a weird thing as well. So my Twitter account actually was one of those sort of underground sex accounts actually I've rebranded a few times <laughs> no because like I never shared any nudes or anything like that but like it, my Abby was a picture of my torso um, I'm not gonna say the username because it's embarrassing but um, tell us the username no 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 that can't go on there I'll tell you after okay but like it was basically a way to express myself sexually and emotionally. Mm-hmm. So I think it was like I was slowly come after I'd come out to myself, I was slowly expressing myself. Yes. And then like time hop is still showing me tweets from twenty twelve and I'm like, Oh god. Yeah. So I was just um, thinking I had my very own time hop. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> Twitter because I, I the other thing was that I thought if I start following someone on Twitter I can get a grasp of their personality because I don't know about apps or anything because when, when you obviously when you're in the closet you don't like grinders are a lot more mainstream nowadays yes but like in 2012 I didn't know of what apps you're supposed to use or how I, I all I know was of was gay chat some sort of gay chat mm. and I thought I don't know who's going to be some weirdo or something at least if I follow someone for like a few weeks and I can get a grasp of what they're like. Yeah, still weirdos though, aren't they? Yeah, but you, you can you can t- you can weed out the weirdos right. from it. You can say so you can be like, mm, mm. maybe not. Mm. I can see this guy's a bit weird or something. So when did your interest in sexual health? Because you you said earlier that you were that that friend in the group who was kind of always very aware of sexual health. So if you weren't, so you must have. So do you mean that from your first gay sexual experience? It was literally the first time I got tested. That's where the that's where it came. Like I just thought, ooh. Like, because you're not really, like, we have a thing, there's a lot at the moment with uh, teaching, I guess, sex, um, different kind of sex education. Mm. I mean, because I think if it starts off from school, if you're taught about how they can, because I, I feel like when I was in primary school, I didn't know the possibility <clears throat> of a sex, of a, a gay relationship. Yeah, no, that makes like sense. I literally like being gay was like the worst thing ever, and like I never saw it on TV, I never saw it in a magazine, I never saw it in films, I never saw it as a child. I never saw that representation. <coughs> I never saw two gay black men together as well, which is like what I think um, part of the reason why the Me Him Us campaign took off as it did. But like, 
I feel like if you're taught from a young age that not even about sex, but just two men can be in a relationship and be happy and be loving and be intimate together, you won't grow up to be homophobic mm. <laughs> or confused. It's <laughs> even one or the other. Mm. So, because it's like you kind of have to teach yourself that being gay is okay. Because no one teaches you that. Like, and then in the inheritance, there was a thing about that actually like you teach yourself from sexual um from sex from relationships and from your friends and that's kind of how you learn the ins and outs like and it's the, inter- the internet now. baptism by fire yeah 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 so um i don't know i just feel like stuff needs to be taught mm-hmm. from a young age and then going on from that like things will develop and so there was something in this in this first testing experience as it were that made you realize oh i got to st- this is important information and so how can I help disseminate that information um, I think at first it was all for me like right. I just thought okay I'm gay I'm sexually active now I think I tested I think I started having sex in the October I got tested in January I think it was something like that and that was my first test and I didn't even know where to go I had to find all this online really? and then yeah and then when I went then it was just like I should probably know the basics of transmission and um like think I don't know and then every time I went there I was re- reading the pamphlets like because like I was genuinely interested mm. and then like I just kind of built up a knowledge naturally and then last pride last black pride that's where I met Mark and I think he was doing outreach so mm. he was giving out condoms and then what did I say what are those <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> not at the time actually not at that time I think I was <laughs> 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 I just remembered the video. I sent Phil a video the other day. <laughs> okay. Um. No. So and then um. I think uh. I started going to discussion panels, um. On prep because I'd always like I'd always had an interest in prep because I always thought okay prep works, and um prep is available um in America, but we don't have it here in the UK. Yeah. I don't understand it's like proven to stop HIV but yeah we're not we're not utilizing it so I always I was always following the government because the government's like oh we're going to do a trial we're going to do this so I was always following that as well so when um, Mark invited me to the, the first I think PrEP 17 video that's when I guess the, in, the interest kind of blossomed right because it was like I haven't to my knowledge seen people being active about it I've only seen sexual health services I haven't seen the other side of it so I didn't know that. And I think even maybe a lot of people that know the work that I'm doing probably didn't know a lot of what's happening or behind the scenes mm. sort of thing. My introduction to PrEP was because of my drug use mm. and my partying. And the first time I was offered to go on the impact trial, I was like, no. And thinking back, I was like, well, why would I have said no? And it was because there was such a strong narrative, a slut-shaming narrative around PrEP at the time. And so I remember seeing online and indeed in articles and um, LGBT media talking about, you know, um, criticizing PrEP, saying it's an excuse for people to, <laughs> you know, have profligate sex and, you know, just use a condom. And so there was a great deal of shame. Yeah. And the second time I was offered, it was because the, and this is why I love the NHS, because they're, they're actually, they're so thorough and persistent. And she was like, you know, I really think you should consider <laughs> going on this trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did. But then when I went on the trial and started taking PrEP, I'm, I'm still on that trial now, I didn't want to tell anybody that I was on PrEP. Really? Yeah. I, I, was, I felt really ashamed that I was taking it, even though it was me making a decision, a good decision for myself, <laughs> which is how shame works, right? It's well, like, I don't know. Because, like, I've always heard about the whole... Cause I'm on the trial as well, mm-hmm. but I've always heard about this whole... Oh, if you're on prep, then that means you're a slut, and that you're just well. Back I was in. also in it being a slut. Yeah, but that's so I think I was like, oh my god, <laughs> I'm like, I'm the person they're talking about. Ah, okay. I, I think that's that. why I didn't want to tell anybody. But like dude, with me, I like when I was using apps, I never got any of, any, I've never gotten any stick for it ever. I don't know. I think maybe it's a different time. I don't know. Mm. But to my knowledge, when people see that I'm on prep, they they. Usually think that I'm irresponsible, <laughs> or like o- they're over a little quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, they're like Honestly. actually I am for you right now. <laughs> yeah, um, but like no, and so that's the thing though is that there wasn't I didn't encounter anyone in real life who had who held that opinion. It was uh, actually media and commenters on media who were doing the slut shaming around prep. Have you noticed that there's not the same sort of 
like there's not that same sort of idea when it comes to straight people having sex. It's only when it comes to gay men having anal sex is like you need to wear a condom. But it's because that kind of idea oh, of yeah. wearing a condom since the nineteen eighties because of the epidemic yeah. is stuck. So it's like now people aren't using condoms. Well, so, but then as soon as anyone says you're not using condoms. There's STIs. You can get, but it's like everyone knows. It's like it's not. It's not like we're not we're hiding that. Or we're yeah, not there's that special so gay gunnery. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Do you know what I mean? But it's we don't. Gunnery, we don't yeah. force straight people to use condoms. Yeah. Like even if they're taking the pill to stop them from, if the woman's taking a pill to stop them from getting pregnant, that's fine. But this was the, how it was when that the contraceptive pill first came out. There was all this stigma about how women are going to be like sleeping around and doing this and doing that. But now. No one cares. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's a progressive thing. And I think where we're still in a place where a lot of people are learning about prep, learning, people are learning the science behind it. And I think within the next few years, I think we'll develop, like we've come a long way in the last five years. Thanks to people like Greg. Greg mm. Busy Being Black returns in just a moment. So in the scope of the work that you do, are you seeing any reasons why black gay men are accessing PrEP less frequently than our white counterparts? Um, there's, I know there's less, like, targeted stuff. There's, okay. But, um... So there are less targeted campaigns at black I gay men. I guess so, but then there's also the argument that the information is there and that black men can access it the same way white men can access it, but... That, there's, it's, the, like, someone, I had this discussion, I mean, he, he ended up, we... I can't remember how it ended, but we were both going back and forth, and he, that's what his argument was. So, um, was he white? No, he was black. Oh, but it's just like you know, people like you and I, we know about prep, and he did. So people can take more care of their sexual health and that. But it's just, it's more. There's a lot of inequalities when it comes to um, healthcare in general. Yes, and especially sexual health, and you can tell that because of the amount of um, people that are on the people that have HIV around the world that are black men black gay men and black bi men it's a lot higher but I think I don't it's hard to pinpoint exactly I think the same reasons why gay um, by men, black men have I guess HIV can be the same reasons why they don't access PrEP like I guess some people think they're not having that type of sex which is uh. one thing there's masters um, like people like how they feel about their masculinity mm-hmm. if they have to it's like sort of telling when certain people are told to wear a condom they feel like that that is like a challenge to their masculinity in the same way as even testing or like taking pe- prep so, you know so there's that and it's actually universal so around the world like there's all the prep trials that are going on around the world and have gone around the intake of black men has always been low the impact the impact trial that mm. we're both on yeah is low really low there's something I want to like encourage people to go on the trial or to seek out prep or to seek out more information. Mm. Um, but in order to do that, I want to understand what their barriers to seeking out that kind of treatment might be. Does I think a lot sense? of but people it's hard to say if we don't have any data that tells us why they're not accessing yeah, it. Because I think a lot of people don't like what I find is a lot of people, a lot of black men anyway, they they know that prep exists but they don't trust it. So they either don't trust the, the science or um, they feel like it's not for them because it's not advertised to them directly. Mm. Or like what I noticed is when I went, I don't know if you saw this, but I went to Dean Street to do the, um, to, to get onto the trial. And in the room, I think me and my friend were the only two black men in the room. Wow. So. How many people were in the room? Like 35. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know. I just I, I think that's part of why it's so important to kind of get the message out there and to say that this the the fact that it works and this isn't a trial to see. Annoyingly, this impact trial isn't actually to see if it works. Is to see how many people are going to use it and for how long. Right. Which types of people <clears throat> are going to use it and for how long and like it's kind of been rolled out really badly. I don't know if I should say that, but it has. <laughs> Like, um, there's the intake of um, trans people is low. The intake of um, straight people is low. Uh, black African women is low. All these demographics, these other demographics other than... Oh, because white gay men have for so long been the face of HIV AIDS. Yep. 
Right, of course. So actually, when we provide that kind of context, that it's not just black gay men, but rather it's straight people as well and our trans siblings, of course, they're being excluded. Yeah, but that's that's kind of like when PrEP was coming around in the UK and when the government was looking at um, doing like basically rolling out or doing this trial, that's how it was advertised as a gay lifestyle drug. Oh, yeah. But then we completely forget that there's other demographics that are affected by HIV as well. Wow, that just shows how persistent that gay disease narrative (laughs) is. So So if it's a gay disease narrative and there are um, black men, for example, who think that being gay challenges their masculinity, they're not going to access a drug that is created for, quote unquote, gay lifestyles. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I want to talk to you about stereotypes and masculinity. I'm not sure which one I want to pick, but when I say masculinity, yeah, they're they're (laughs) all connected. Yeah. Um, If I say masculinity to you, what comes to your mind? Um, Masculinity can be whatever you want it to be. I think. I think the the whole world is starting to realize that. (laughs) Annoyingly, but I don't know. Um, I'm just tired of like people forcing things on me because mm. I can be masculine. Like the, the, the phrase, um, you don't look gay really pisses me off. Yeah, what does it even mean? Because, I mean I know what it means. It means that you Because when me. I when I say <laughs> what does gay look like? Mm. Then they don't they never have an answer. It's like, okay, I don't look gay but I am, so what now? Like yeah. am I not supposed to be gay? Am I supposed to, like what do I just I don't know and it's, I think it's that's that can make it confusing for people. Because it's like the stereotypes of what it means to be a gay black man. Of, uh, the stereotypes of what it means to be a black man are you need to be um, physically and mentally strong at all times. Mm-hmm. Like you can't ever go to a doctor about your mental health and like you can't ever, if something's like ailing you physically, you can't do anything about it because you're a strong man. And mm-hmm. you're, like in that, re- that that idea of being a, being masculine and being hyper-masculine and strong is, is implemented on men in general. But it's even worse on black men because of the stereotypes that have been going back like 200 years. And like, I don't know, I just feel like I may not look, I don't I don't know, I just feel like I don't fit into these boxes that people are always trying to force me into. Like, I don't know, it just irritates me so much. Mm. Mostly because I've never fit into that. Like, oh my God, this is a good one. Okay. So the other day um, I was by my area in East London and I was walking past this woman and um, she she like grabbed her. She had her phone in her hand and she held it tightly to her chest as I passed. And I just laughed because it's like you're so wrong. Mm. I may look big and scary or whatever, but I'm like I couldn't be any far away from the stereotype you think I am. And it just made me laugh. But it used to really irritate me. There's there's even times where like uh, I I noticed or my friend helped me notice that I I kind of when I'm in a really crowded or public area, I just have like a I just look straight in front of me. I don't look around me because people are either staring at me or um, giving me looks or whatever. So because of that, I just... But then I'm trying to stop that. And I feel like it will better my writing if I have like a literally, a literal better worldview. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's things like that. And it's like there was something in um, the TV show, uh, what's it called? Dear white people, and there was a scene at the end where uh, one of the characters, Reggie, has to see um, a therapist, and he's talking about how um, when he sees like there's a white person on like on the opposite, basically in front of them, and like he was thinking, do I cross the street? Because like I know she she might I know she's thinking that um, I might want I cross the street, but then. I'm gonna come across racist, and mm-hmm. it's just it just it made me think, and it was just like it's so true, and it's like, and then he said about how I'm a good person, I'm not a threat to anyone, but um, the idea of me being a threat is a threat to me, or something like yes, that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I just thought, wow, like that's I I just remember relating to that, just thinking I I do not fit into these boxes. I don't feel like I'm a stereotypical black. Guy. I don't think I'm a stereotypical black gay guy. I don't think I am. I don't, I get. I mean, in some ways, maybe I am, but like I don't know. I just feel like I'm always getting pigeonholed in what I should be, and like what I've noticed is a lot of the time it's women. Women are always trying to push me into these boxes. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I don't. But like I. It's like they want me to be more effeminate than I am, and like they feel like something is wrong because I'm not how they 
vision I should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. Or the heavily leaning on me because I am a certain kind of gay. Mm. My mom said something to me a number of years ago that didn't make sense until really recently. Mm -hmm. She was like, you're a man. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I was having a conversation with her about my best girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, she's just droning on at me about this thing. And I'm like, here's a solution. Here's how do you fix it? And mom was like, yeah, because you're a man. And it didn't make any sense to me until a few years later. And I'm like, oh, because I'm still a man. <laughs> and what she's saying is like, I th- and, and what I figured out rather is that my proximity my or my gayness yeah. and my proximity to women means that my masculinity has been challenged. My manness has mm. been challenged by myself, by other men, by women my entire life. And so I find women always leaning on me because they think I fit that prototype of gay best friend. Mm -hmm. Josh, do these jeans look okay? Does this look okay? Should I wear this? I'm like, I don't actually care. (laughs) I don't actually care. (laughs) But then that goes back to stereotypes. Mm, What a gay gay man should be. A gay best friend. Well, because I grew up and it was Carson Cressley on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy the first round. And I thought, oh, well, then maybe that's what being gay is. <laughs> it's wearing purple Gucci suits. <laughs> and going, no, 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 no. Bootcut jeans, darling, you'll die. You're like, you know, yeah, I was like, I guess I'll do that. <laughs> and kind of sh- shaking that off and kind of figuring out how to be Josh. Has hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's been such a nightmare. How have you learned to be more Phil? Um... I think I was initially unapologetically Phil. <laughs> I think I still am to some extent. Actually, let's go back. Describe Phil. Phil is loud. <laughs> Phil is enthusiastic. Phil is, like, extremely open. <laughs> Phil is funny. Um, Phil gives good advice. <laughs> um, Phil is kind. I think there's going to be a few people that will disagree with that last one if they listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Phil is a mixture of things, I think. And Phil isn't anything that ster- that society deems him to be. Mm. That's what Phil is. And how do you lean into your Phil-ness? Um, I think I just kind of own who I am. I think that's the only way to do it. Like, I think a lot of people, they... They, they're always afraid of how they come across and they're always trying to be something they're not but why can't they just sorry, sorry. So, such a bitch I've <laughs> like I was, I was, I was I had friends in mind I was reading me again <laughs> inadvertently but it's just like you need to accept yourself for who you are mm-hmm. and just roll with it because you can't keep trying to be something that people expect you to be because once you if, like, if you keep chasing that, you're just going to like, I don't know, you're just gonna hurt yourself in the process. Yeah, you're always gonna be out of breath. Plus, if you like, what's the what's the saying by RuPaul? What you say? If you can't love yourself, how the hell are you gonna love somebody else? Exactly, it's true. It's very true. And I think we know that to be a truth. Yeah. Right. Like I think we can see it on billboards. We can hear RuPaul say it. We can hear you say it. But I think how we actually do that mm. is hard. Yeah, that's true. for me. It's been hard, at least, mm. to actually make to prioritize myself and what I want, particularly after what happened last November. Yeah, getting my voice back has been a real challenge. Yeah, but you've you've been doing it, mm. and you bounced back. I think. Yeah, but I think the other thing is what's important is to be kind to yourself. Because a lot of people, that's <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I keep drinking here. Don't even mean to do that. I feel like my busy being black returns back. in just a moment. What would you tell your younger self? You're gay. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, um, <laughs> no, um, um, sorry. No, I don't know. I wish I would have, some, to some degree, I wish I knew sooner. Because, you know, there's a lot of gay people that knew from, like, childhood. Mm. And I felt like I kind of had an attraction to men. But I didn't know what it was. I thought it was more of a friendshipy thing. Mm. And I had this weird, like, feeling all the time when I was I think I was attracted to someone <laughs> then there was this weird thing where 
um, my older brother and my dad weren't in my life. My my older brother more. I actually met him at twenty five, which is a whole other situation. Yeah, it's like shit. How much more time do we have? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but my dad was kind of my dad was. I didn't grow up with my dad. Like uh, he was there, but I didn't live with him and stuff like that. So I always kind of longed for my dad in like people, and like I longed for my brother in people. So I thought it was like I wanted like my brother and my dad, but it was actually I found these men attractive, but I didn't know it at the time. So I grew up with that. So I wish I kind of knew I, I knew sooner. But then I don't know if my life would have ended up the same way if I did. So I think it kind of helped me coming out quite late because then I've met my friends out in my 20s rather than in teenagers where it'd probably be a whole lot messier. Mm. You know, or like I'd probably be having sex a lot younger. I, I don't know. You know, there's lots of different things. I don't know. So I think it worked out. But the advice I would give myself, which is the question... Mm. <laughs> Everything is going to be okay. Because I felt like I was struggling, I think, at times, but it was all very internal. So I struggled to myself, by myself, with myself. And I just kind of processed my own sexuality. But I don't. F- I would have never been able to come out in school. Never. I would have beaten up every day or something. I don't know. But then I don't... If I, I wish... I don't know what would have happened if I was able to own it like how I am now. Like if I came out at 14 and I had the openness that I have now, and I had the balls that I have now. I don't know how that would have went in school because right. people would have respected me for having... So I don't know. I feel like it was kind of taboo in that school. I yeah, mean, I mean, it's a Catholic, Catholic all-boys yeah. school, yeah. In East London. I, I think, think so. people have, like, a fantasy about what happens at all-boys schools. Yeah, because everyone's like, oh, did you... I was like, no, are you mad? Like, I didn't even... I didn't even see any opportunities. I think everybody I liked was definitely straight. There was no doubt, like, every <laughs> single time. Oh, mate. Did you ever watch Sugar Rush? No. Okay. But it was, like, basically it's this lesbian girl that moves to Brighton and, like, her best friend is this this pretty mixed-race girl and um, she, like, falls in love with her and, like, she's longing for her and stuff. And that was kind of, at times, at school. Yeah, I think we've all had that. <laughs> Are you sure you're not gay? Everyone's a little bit gay, right? <laughs> I think now the argument is, it's all made up. <laughs> That that belief, I feel like things are getting things are changing. Mm-hmm. Like even with guys that aren't out out or guys that are identified straight or guys that they that are questioning, there's a lot more openness with that. I feel, and like within the last three or four years, I feel like people are more open to things than they've ever been. Yeah, I think so, and I think there's also a changing in the uh, in in the way that we as gay men talk about it as mm-hmm. well. So. The idea that someone sucks a dick and is therefore gay, you know, that that was such a strong thing. Yeah. But now it's like, well, no, it's just like men sometimes that might be okay. Yeah. Right? It's less forcefully gay. Yeah, that's true, actually. I, I, do, I do agree with that. I think. But I feel like there's always been this thing. I mean, that's not backed up by any data. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a Kinsey scale of like. That, you know, I believe in the Kinsey scale. I believe in it, but like. Just because I think it's convenient as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm, I'm lucky I'm a six. I wouldn't want to be in it. Like, I'd, I don't know. I oh, think so you think you're 100% gay? I'm sure I'm 100% gay. Wow. I, I've tried with girls and. Really? Nah. Just didn't, didn't see. I had sex with girls. Did you? Yeah. Was expected. Yes. Everyone's always so surprised. My mom, really? <laughs> I was like, yes. Yeah. 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 I tried, but I just couldn't. Couldn't I do physically, it. Physically, physically, like just couldn't. And then I think the last time I tried, I was. I knew. I knew I was gay at this point. But right. I'm just. I'm in uni. Let me try it. And it just didn't happen. I was like, yeah, I'm now gay anyway. So. Yeah, you're like, sorry, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. What would you say to little brown boys around the world? Well, for little brown boys all across the world, I would say it is perfectly okay to be who you are. I say it may not be okay to be who you are, where you are, but to know your own truth and to be comfortable with yourself is the most important. If anything, you may need to move countries to be somewhere safer. But there are laws that are changing around the world. Slowly, slowly, we will get to a place where it will be acceptable to be gay in every country in the world. So I think just hang in there. Because I actually, man, I, I, I tend to talk to a lot of guys in different countries. Or they, they will come to me. I think my openness kind of brings people in. 
So the other day, a guy was asking me about how to get friends, but a lot of the time it's Nigeria, and I think it's the West African thing. I think they've never seen a gay African be so open about sexuality and sexual health and just open in general. So they come to me for advice or, like, with their problems or, like, for advice and stuff like that. So that's, that's actually really rewarding. I really like that. Talk to me about your dad. My dad. Um, my dad, I have a good relationship with my dad. My dad is like the polar opposite to my mum, <laughs> like literally. So my dad is quite quiet and reserved and private, where my mum is kind of... I think I, my openness may come from her somewhat, actually, because she's quite loud and open and expressive. And um, my relationship with my dad is good. Uh, I think I, when I came out to him, he actually really surprised me. I think he, I was terrified of telling him. Uh, my mum was ask, continually asking me to ask about my, to tell my dad. So when I did, like she wanted him, she wanted him to be how she felt. But my <laughs> said he was like, yes. <laughs> no, but, so he was just fine. I was like really apprehensive. I was shaking the shit. And I was like, I need to tell you something. I told him and I was like, okay. He was like, yeah, I understand that. You know, that's how you are. I'm not, you can't change and that's fine. Like you, you, you know, sort of be yourself. Yeah. And I was just so surprised. I was like, I didn't expect that because he's not like, like I said, not very emotional. Like <laughs> he's very private, so I didn't know how I did not I didn't know how he was gonna react. Mm. So yeah, he took it very well. You know, my dad, um, when I came out to him, mm. we were in the car. He had picked me up from school, and I said, "Dad, I've got something to tell you." And I think I actually came out as bisexual, mm-hmm. which was the thing to do. Then. Yeah, because there was the it was thing. easier. You know, there was still hope <laughs> for the family if you came out as bi. And um, he didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll, I, you know, I'd been sitting on this for so long, and I had, it was like my eyes were welling up with tears, and I was like, are you going to say anything? <laughs> you know, very dramatic. And he was like, well, I can't change it. What do you want me to say? And I was so upset that that was his response. <laughs> like, what, do you, what do you mean? <laughs> and so I was like picking, it was like, in hindsight, it was like the perfect response. It was like what your dad said. He's like, okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> And I couldn't, I, I, I didn't process like, that at the time that he was actually accepting me. I picked a fight with him a few weeks later saying, just admit that you would hate having a faggot for a son. Mm-hmm. And he was like, who are you? Like, <laughs> I, I never even said that. I literally said it was fine. <laughs> well, like, I think it's kind of, before you come out to anyone, you kind of anticipate direction. Yes. So you probably anticipate a whole lot worse. So and that's so what, what that's happens what, with that? Anxiety, basically. Where do you what, what do you do, you do with it? it? That's true, actually. That's true. You what don't the fuck. Do you do with it? You don't know what to do with it. Uh, yeah, I reckon I just kind of shot mine out to everyone else. That anxiety. How old were you when you came out to your dad? Sixteen. Wow. I came out to my mum first, mm-hmm. and she was like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> she was like, "I've known since you were four. Oh, yeah. She said I turned one of my dad's military T-shirts into a dress and like wrapped her turquoise belt around my waist and oh wow, put some turquoise heels on. And I was like, oh, so I had style. <laughs> Even then, <laughs> yeah. And she knew, mm-hmm. she knew. And so she was, she kind of bigged me up and was like, you know, don't underestimate your family. You know, but I was most nervous about telling my grandfather who was a Baptist preacher. Ooh, <sighs> yeah. yeah. And so I prefaced our conversation with this. You know, I'm your grandson, and I've been your grandson for 16 years. And he's like, it just gets to the point. <laughs> and I was like, I think I'm gay. And he was like, Joshua, I have known you were gay since you were four. Four seemed to be the kind of I was just about to say the that. age. You must have had some moments at four. Where I was like, oh. Yeah, it might have been me in, pretending to be Oprah. It could have been <laughs> the dresses. It might have been me fixing my sister's hair. I mean, it could have been a number of things. <laughs> could have been the way I walked. There were a number of clues. <laughs> Which is not to say that all gay people are a certain way when they're a certain age, but I was a more effeminate child. I really wasn't. I don't know what that was about. Well, because I think not everyone, not all, not all gay people are I know, but, effeminate. like, I guess even more masculine gays were, tend to have been feminine in their youth. I re- well, that's I a statement, but yeah. I don't know. Really? I feel. I think I've heard that before, but like I really, I don't feel like I was. Ah, uh, so as in, as if masculinity, as we understand it in the gay scene, is kind of this big up facade. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I just. But what is effeminate? Right. 
Well, I don't like the the. I guess somewhat. To I some like how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> but just the the guess. I guess the stereotypes. A lot of the stereotypes. I just feel like I didn't. I I never felt. I felt always felt different. I always felt different as a kid. So did you ever feel less gay because you weren't more effeminate? I I think initially, before I came out fully, because mm. I feel like what it was, it like was I like, can't be gay because I don't match that. Yeah, right. but um, I remember there was this uh, there was this this piece that I wanted. I think it was an interview that Russell Tovey did, and he said something along those lines. And when he, he said when he was younger, he didn't see any like like honest representation that represented even him so from him to, for him to say that as a gay white man well that's not hard I mean because gay the gay story has been so flamboyant yes I don't know I just that's kind of what I meant I meant I, I don't remember being flamboyant mm. in any way and then I think as I aged I think I kept all of that to myself so I think I actually was flamboyant but all of that was hidden Really, but I don't know. I think that's kind of how I hidden. I hid it. I kind of grew up with it, hiding it in a weird way. I don't know. It's very strange. You said earlier that you mostly date older men. Yes. Talk to me about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might come from my stepdad because my stepdad is like older than my mum. So I think I th- that's where I think I don't know. There's daddy issues there somewhere. Maybe I don't know. To see me for my therapist, but I'm currently like me doing some digging. <laughs> I'm currently seeing like, someone. Talk to me about your relationship with older men. You started with the dad, and then you come. I see. I see. <laughs> but I'm actually, I'm actually seeing someone my age for once. How's that? Once. Really good. But what is it about older men? And then we'll get to the guy you're seeing. Um, is it anything? I mean, it must be something if you, if you recognize that you date older men, right? I think even from the beginning, like he's not massive, like didn't. I think, I don't know, it's the attraction. It's, it's just something attractive about older men for me personally. It's more the attraction and like the coolness and the kind of like sometimes they're a bit of a mess, which is kind of hot. <laughs> like, but like most of the time they have their life together or they have their life together on the outside. Yeah. Underneath there, there's a whole. Not not all gay men, not all older gay men, but some of them, mm. and some of them, some of the ones that I find attractive, and I don't know. It's just like it's more. I find them attractive more than anything initially than mm. anything else. I'm just very interested. I have like a real problem with older male authority figures. Do you? Oh yeah. See, I don't know. I don't know. Like, don't even don't even step to me. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Where's what's that from? It's a. I have a deep distrust of older men. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I oh. think. I think my, part of it might stem from the sexual assault. I think mm. part of it's dad issues. Yeah. You know, abandonment, rejection. Yeah, I don't know, and I, I, I find, you know, there are people like Mark Thompson and Rob Barkley and Topher Campbell, and the list goes on. And my mentor Eric Collins, you know, people I really admire and I look up to, and they could tell me anything, and I'll respond to it. But as a general rule, I mean, you have to have jumped through a number of hoops for me to extend any sort of courtesy or, or trust to you if you're an older man. But in general, just in not general, just sexually. yeah, just wow, in general, okay. yeah. So, what's the biggest lesson you've learned? I don't know. It's just like the last eighteen months. There's been so many lessons, <laughs> you know. Like, what would be what would be yours? Because I have so many. Like, so much has changed in the last. See, <laughs> mine would be your silence will not protect you. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's a good one, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> it's that, just I, I don't, I've had like two breakups. I've moved from my ex boyfriend's house back to my mom's. I've moved out of my mom's house. There's been some stuff with my family. I'm like, I'm in a really good place at the minute. Oh, there's this this sort of my career at the minute. So there's, there's a lot of different things. So it's like, it's hard to pinpoint one changing like thing. Um, biggest lesson. I don't know. I feel like I've learned, too much. I've learned so much about myself. I think um, my biggest lesson is actually, now I've got it, is that stuff that happened to you in your childhood will come back in your adult years. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> this interview is over <laughs> get out sorry <laughs> but it's true yeah 
<laughs> Sorry to do that. To no, you. it's fine. But that's what there's yeah, been. Fuck, that's the truth. But like, it's been really helpful though. I don't know. Like, I went through during my childhood. My mom was quite hot and cold, and like that's affected how I am in relationships. Phil, mm. <laughs> sorry, I didn't think you, you should have your own show. <laughs> Get off of mine. <laughs> <laughs> but like, big, like just knowing that information, and like mm. someone once told me, and this is I guess will coincide to it. Someone said just knowing sort of. Sometimes knowing the problem is the beginning. Yes. So I feel like knowing that sort of a somewhat neglectful childhood has, like, I hadn't, like, because I used to see my childhood, as a, as the, there was a tweet, I don't know if you saw it, but it was the one about um, when you think um, all the all the freedom you had as a child was actually emotional neglect. <laughs> <laughs> like, it got, like, it got, like, 70 retweets and something like that. And, like, it triggered a lot of people. I didn't mean to do that, but it triggered a lot of people. And people were like, wait, wait, what? Yeah. Someone asked me to delete it. Like, really? Oh, yeah. But, like, it's stuff like that, but because just knowing and being able to have a therapist to go through all this shit, yeah. with, it's been really beneficial, and it, it will help me to grow. So it's that, yeah. It's like because if you know where that, if you know it, then sometimes in situ you can be like, aha, this is one of my hangups. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I feel like a lot of people have gone through stuff as kids and not dealt with that. And yes. Then that's when your midlife crisis comes up in your forties and fifties, or indeed <laughs> in your twenties. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I kind of had a, like a mini one because of this mm. it was like a realisation I had something similar to a midlife crisis with, with knowing that information which is knowing that and then realising that a lot of my behaviour stemmed from that and then trying to go forward because when you when you know better you do better yeah and exactly. so if you if someone like you who's seeing a therapist who's doing this kind of excavation yeah once that's been uncovered you gotta deal with it <laughs> exactly you got to use it for something yeah but yeah. I don't know I just feel like it's very important to talk about things because I feel like if you don't you just compress them and then things aren't gonna work out for you so it takes a level of self-awareness mm. right that's what I'm hearing from you yeah yeah and not being scared to lean into that mm. we can use it yeah yeah that's oops oh this is actually great so the, uh, three three times a day I have an alarm um what's going right mm-hmm. so you list three things that are going right and it's supposed to help center you and remind you to be grateful Sweet. You go first. I'm having this conversation with you, which I'm really enjoying mm-hmm. and which I've been really excited about. I'm employed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, I thought I would never work again. I was a bit I'm worried working. about that. <laughs> I'm going to lie to you. I was like, oh shit, what's it going to do? Fuck. <laughs> I'll build it myself. Yeah. <laughs> Not a problem. No one will hire me. I will build it myself. Um, and I feel like I'm in a very good place emotionally. Mm. I'm much better than I was. And every day I'm getting a little bit better. Mm. So, and I'm proud of myself. That's four. I'm just proud of myself in general. (laughs) Good. You. Um, this conversation that I've been looking forward to as well. Um, I kind of, I've kind of gone a really long time not knowing what the hell I want to do with my life. Mm. And it suddenly came. And like, as soon as it came like campaigns came um right a lot of articles got written <laughs> a lot of um things have been done so i think i'm really grateful that i know exactly what i want to do for the rest of my life and um lastly i guess what's going right what's going right this guy that i'm seeing at the moment <laughs> what's going right about it it's very early like I'll probably like by the time this airs it might have ended (laughs) 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 no but and if it hasn't it feels really enjoying hanging out with you um I don't know I just thought I I didn't think I was like emotionally available like you know where I don't I, I broke up with someone about a year ago um and I didn't think that I would get here so quickly and it's kind of caught me off guard so I'm in a, like a vulnerable position. Do you but like being vulnerable? Are you comfortable I in your hate vulnerability? Being vulnerable. Really? Like I hate it so much, and I'm a lot more anxious than I am usually, which makes it worse. Because of the vulnerability? Yeah. Right. Because I I, I think I have this kind of push and pull thing where so if I feel like because of the hot going back to the hot and cold thing, if someone if I I latch on 
and then I'd run away. Oh, yes. <laughs> but then, like, I I start running away when they start to come. <laughs> when they hug you back, you're like, stop it, get off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's another thing I'm working on. But, um, yeah, I, I feel like I need to, I have things to work through with my therapist um, independently, and I think things will hopefully work out. I think they will. Do you have a problem with intimacy, do you think? Not intimacy, per se. I think it's more... I've been taught really messed up ways to love people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to count all these triggers because I feel like... <laughs> oh, I'm going to. I might add a little edit afterward. Ding! <laughs> or a zzz. <laughs> or a <laughs> Every time you kick me in the nuts. Yeah. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. I would love to hear from you, so please get in touch at busybeingblackpod at gmail.com. And remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Please leave a rating and a review and follow us on social media where you can join the conversation using the hashtag busybeingblack. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. I'm Anushka Astana, and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from Hartlepool. I mean, the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places, and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.